starting a series today called The Star, A Journey to Christmas. And this is uh, the Advent season uh, in, the, in the calendar. And uh, this is a, a tradition that's usually uh, practiced in, in liturgical churches, uh, but more and more churches of our brand and stripe, so to speak, are taking a look at this idea of Advent. And Advent is a word that just means coming. And uh, churches that celebrate Advent, they, they focus on kind of preparing themselves for the celebration of the birth of Jesus. And uh, they kind of try and slow life down a little bit and take a look at their own lives uh, as they just appreciate this idea that Jesus has come. And that Jesus came 2,000 years ago. And so we're going to play on that a little bit. And over the next four weeks, we're going to unwrap several gifts together. Hope and love and joy and peace. And today we're going to cover hope and look at what the Christmas story really says about the subject uh, of hope. But before we get there, we need to just make some observations um, about Christmas, the, the Christmas story and the Christmas narrative that we, that we uh, find in the Bible is only in two books. Uh, you will find it in the Gospel of Matthew and you will find it in the Gospel of Luke. That's the story of the birth of Jesus and the narrative. It tells a story of how he was born. You will only find it there. And it's fairly easy to read uh, but at the same time, very, very profound, okay? But what you read in Matthew and Luke is very, very different than what we see in the modern world and in the, the images that we have of Jesus' birth in our minds. Uh, for instance, the, the narrative in Matthew and Luke is not uh, this picture here. I don't know if you've seen this before. Uh, but this is a popular new uh, manger scene, as it were, uh, talking about the birth of Jesus, and it's all modern. You know, you've seen the traditional ones. Well, this one is very popular. It's $130, um, and if you look really closely, you see some, some funny things, or perhaps not so funny. This is a very controversial piece that's selling is very hot right now. Well, you see the wise men on the right-hand side, you know, the three wise men with their, what do you call those things, segways, I think you call them? And they have their gifts from Amazon, you know, in their, their boxes or Amazon boxes. And, you know, you see how they're dressed with their, with their sunglasses. And, uh, you know, it's very modern. And then you look on the left-hand side there and you see the wise man, or sorry, the shepherd. And he's got his, you know, his iPad with his, with his earphones in. And he's wearing, you know, the shiny pants and, and everything. And you see the, the sheep next to him in a designer sweater. And, and you see the cow is 100% organic. Uh, and you, you, you can even see the manger. You can't read it there, but it's 100% gluten-free feed. Okay, and then you look at the at the, the the you know Mary and Joseph in the center there, and you've got Joseph doing the selfie, you know, and there's Mary not dressed particularly in a modest fashion, shall we say? And she's got her Starbucks coffee, and she's making her little face there, and you've got Jesus, and he's in a designer cap, and so so th this is not what what Matthew and Luke 
or yeah, what Matthew and Luke are talking about, all right? Uh, it's, it's, it's amusing maybe to some or maybe sacrilegious to others, but it, it's not found in the Bible, all right? But, but neither is the next slide found in the Bible. This is a more traditional uh, picture of Christmas, you know, and you, 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 have, uh, you have Mary and she looks so nice and so holy and, you know, and you've got the Jesus, he's not crying at all, he's very peaceful. You've got the Joseph kind of looking there above, you've got the, the wise men, there's only three of them, you see their gifts, you see the pretty little lamb, you see one shepherd. This is not the Christmas narrative that we see in the Bible. This is a nice traditional picture. Uh, it's very pretty. It's very serene. It's very rose-colored and, and all of that. This is what we see in the Christmas cards. This is what we see in the, the elementary school Christmas presentations, in the church presentations, in the movies, in the television, all of these pretty little scenes of Christmas. Christmas is not that in the Scripture at all. If you read the narratives of Matthew and Luke, you're going to see a rather messy and strange story. So you have a senior couple um, and a temple miracle. I'm referring to the parents of John the Baptist, right? Um, uh, Elizabeth and uh, her, her husband's name, what was it? Zechariah, right? So you have a, this is a senior couple who are well past childbearing uh, age, and, and Zechariah goes into the temple to burn incense. It's a once-in-a-life opportunity, and there is a vision th that he has. There's an angel there, and the angel says, your, your wife's going to have a son. And, th and they're not even talking about Jesus here. This is John the Baptist. So you've got a senior uh, couple. You've got this miracle promised in the temple. You've got this special baby who, who's born, John the Baptist, who's going to prepare the way for Jesus, the Son of God, this huge promise of who, not only who John the Baptist will be, but who Jesus would be. Um, you've got this betrothed young couple, uh, Mary and Joseph. This is a typical teenage arranged betrothal that took place in the ancient Middle East. It was very common. Okay, that's not so bad, but the bride becomes awkwardly pregnant. Ew. So they haven't consummated their marriage yet, according to the whole setup back then. And she's with child? It's uh, awkward, very awkward. She takes a trip over to see Elizabeth, her cousin, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. She comes back home, and she's showing that she's expecting and they're not married, not yet. And so Joseph says, oh, I think I should divorce her. And there's a supernatural thing that happens to Joseph. And no, don't divorce her. You need to take her to be your, your wife because the baby that she's carrying is, is from God. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an awkward moment. You've got this nationwide census in Rome where the couple has to head to his hometown of Bethlehem. You've got this baby born in Bethlehem in poverty, um, being born uh, it, where he was born. We have that, if you go back to that picture uh, of the nice little pretty Jesus scene, just go back one slide. Okay, this, this is, first of all, the, the wise men weren't even there. 
the night that Jesus was born, they weren't there. They weren't even present. It's probably up to two years past before the wise men even get there. I know that sounds a little shocking, but read the narrative and you'll see that. Uh, but when they got to Bethlehem, you, we have this thing of, we have this image in our mind of an inn, and we think like of a hotel or, or a motel, and we say, well, there was no room in the inn, and we think of that. Uh, that's not what an inn was back then. We're probably talking about, about Joseph's relatives that he went to stay with when he was in Bethlehem, and the word for inn there is actually a room that they would have in the ground floor of a home where they would keep the animals. Uh, when they had to bring them indoors, they would br put them in the inn. Uh, and so this, oh, I'm sorry, the inn was the second floor. That's right. If you had a house in the ancient Middle East, they had this room. Some translations use the term upper room. Uh, this was the inn. There was no room in the inn. And so he was, he was born down there on the ground floor, probably where they kept the animals. And this is why it says that when he was born, they placed him in a manger. Uh, Jesus wasn't born in a stable, per se. He may, some say, he may have been born in a cave. It's possible. Uh, but it wasn't like a little hotel or something, you know, where there was no room. This isn't the idea that's in the scripture. So this whole, this whole image is, wow, a little bit, little bit messed up. So go to the next slide. So we have this baby who's born in poverty. This baby is seen uh, by shepherds. Shepherds were... The, the, the marginalized of society. They were not trusted people. Uh, they were paid to watch over and protect uh, flocks that were owned by others. They were not viewed as trustworthy. They were not viewed with integrity, uh, as having integrity. And these were the people who the angels appeared to. A, a vast company of angels appears to these angels and says, glory to God in the highest, to, to, to shepherds. Angels appearing to shepherds, bizarre, strange, very unusual, uh, but this is what happens. You have this paranoid king, uh, Herod the Great, who, who we know something of him from history, which we'll see in a few moments. He oversees the execution of all the babies in the, in the, in the town of Bethlehem to try and make sure that he gets rid of Jesus because he's so paranoid about this, this statement that he's the, somehow the king of the Jews. You have the couple fleeing to Egypt because of this, this uh, execution that Herod's going to oversee. They're basically refugees to Egypt. You have these, these um, uh, stargazers from Persia uh, we call them wise men, okay? The word is the, the, the magi or the magoi in, in Greek. These were astrologers, astronomers, uh, mishmash of magician, astronomer, astrologer, a whole mishmash there. And these people were from Persia, hundreds of miles away to the east, and they're coming over to Jerusalem. And it's probably not three of them. It's probably a caravan of them who traveled hundreds of miles for months on end following this, this star, which is a very bizarre star, by the way. Um, there are astronomers and people who have tried to come up with theories as to what the star of Bethlehem was. Okay, no star behaves the way that the star of Bethlehem behaves. Okay, stars don't rise and stay there. 
Okay, it doesn't work like that. They go from the east to the west like the sun. So if they rise and set, they appear to rise in the east and set in the west. The, the star of Bethlehem did not behave that way. It was only the, the magi who saw the star in the story. The star appears to go out when they get to Jerusalem because they don't know where Jesus is. And then they're, they're told uh, that there's a prophetic word that the baby would be born in Bethlehem. So they head there and then they see the star. So it almost like it goes out and turns on. Bizarre, strange. Um, then they get to the house in Bethlehem probably up to two years after Jesus was even born. And these, these Persian stargazers have enough sense to give these gifts and the gifts that they give to, to Mary and to, to, uh, to Joseph and to Jesus are gifts that suggest that the wise men believe that this little baby, this little child, is God. And they're from Persia. Like, they, they're not Jewish folk. They're not Christian folk. They're Persian. And yet they have enough sense to understand that this little child is God in the flesh. It is a strange, bizarre, awkward violent um, and twisted story and it goes all over the place if you follow it and you try and put the pieces together of Matthew and Luke which I try to do uh, just about every Christmas wow it, you read it and you're like this is nothing like these pretty pretty pictures that we see in the postcards it's quite a story so I want to talk to you about hope today and unwrap the gift that God gives to us of hope uh, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, this passage is quoted from the Old Testament. The, the, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's from Isaiah 9, and it continues and talks about how the baby uh, born would be the, the wonderful counselor, right? The, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, uh, this kind of thing. Well, that's that passage, and Matthew uh, picks it up in Matthew chapter 4, uh, Luke chapter 2. When Jesus is dedicated at the temple in Jerusalem, there are two senior people who run into him. One of them's name is Simeon, and one of them, her name is Anna. And uh, Simeon, uh, uh, yeah, I believe it was Simeon, says this, For my eyes have seen your salvation, um, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people Israel. And Simeon actually says, now I can die in peace because my eyes have seen the salvation of God. This little baby is being brought into the temple to be dedicated. And this is what Simeon perceives and this is what he can see. Uh, there's hope in these, in these passages. When you talk about light in darkness, that suggests the idea of hope. And the first thing about hope that we have to realize is if you don't acknowledge that there's darkness, if you don't acknowledge that there's hopelessness, you're not going to appreciate hope that much. How many of you think we live in a hopeful world? Not so much, right? It's, you look around at the world and you, you observe the, the turmoil and you observe the, the chaos and you observe sometimes the savage things that people do to one another. There was, um, 
Uh, Joe's, you would know this in, I, I, I don't know what country it was, but there was a fierce, fierce bombing where some 300 Muslims were killed in, in Egypt. Yeah, I mean, just, and it's one thing after the other, after the other, just fierce uh, behavior. And you look and you see the rampant power of sin all over the place as it just keeps going and going and going seemingly uh, without limits. And it seems to be a very, very dark world um, that, we, that we live in. Uh, illustration for you, this, this is a, a movie theater, obviously, but you know what one of the problems is of having church in a movie theater? Any ideas? It's a black box. <laughs> it's dark, right? It's made to be dark in here. You know, the center of attention has to be that screen um, in a movie theater. So when you do church in a movie theater, you have to try and lighten it up a little bit, right? You try and brighten it up. Well, you know, we have to distribute power, and it's really hard because there's only like four plugs in here, <laughs> so we have to figure out, how do you do live music in here? How do you light this place up? If I were to turn out all the lights, including the screen, I mean, you'd say, wow, it's pretty dark in here, uh, but you turn one little light on in the darkness, and it's very, very powerful. You, you have to acknowledge that there's a dark world around us. You have to acknowledge that there's hopelessness before you can appreciate hope. And I can imagine what those, those wise men, for example, how much they were, they were uh, uh, risking and how much they, uh, what a, an expression of faith it was when all they're doing is following this crazy light in the sky. I mean, that's all they have. Do you know how dark it gets from traveling to ancient Persia to ancient Jerusalem? There's no street lights. There's no electricity. So all they have is that light in the sky. And an old prophecy, a strange prophecy from the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers 24 and 17 actually, has a, a, a prediction in there. And you have to read the context. It is so strange. Uh, but this, this strange prophet um, says these words, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And many scholars think that this is what the wise men saw when they were far, far away in the east. They saw a star that was rising in Israel. And so they headed there thinking that, wow, this, there's something strange and significant about that star. Probably they had the Hebrew scriptures over there. And many scholars think that this is the passage that may have brought them on that journey. You know, can you imagine them? Oh, well, we still see it. We're going to keep going. It's hope. There's a light of hope there. There's a ray of hope there. Can you imagine what, what uh, Simeon felt when he finally saw this little baby who he believed to be the Messiah? being presented there according to Jewish custom and law um, uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. The hope that he, that he felt and that he saw, uh, that senior lady, Anna, who you can read about in the Gospel of Luke, and the hope that's firing in her soul when she finally sees this baby who is the Messiah. But you've got to acknowledge the fact that there's darkness first. And light shines the most brightly when there's darkness. And maybe in your own life, it's like that. Maybe you feel like 
There's no hope in my situation. My situation is hopeless. Good. That is a very good place to be in if you want to give Jesus your situation. Because he can shine powerfully into that situation if you will acknowledge there is no hope for it. So I need to let God take it. You see, you've got to acknowledge that darkness. Number two, embrace the weight. Embrace the weight. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, this old, old passage from the first book of the Bible. I will put enmity, God says, between you and the woman. And, he, and there he's speaking to the serpent and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head. Uh, if you want to kill a snake, you've got to crush its head and you will bruise his heel. This is viewed as the first prediction of the death of Jesus on the cross. So the serpent would deliver a blow to the, this messianic figure, but it would be a blow somehow that the Messiah would recover from. So this is the, the, the bruise to the heel. And yet he will crush the head of the serpent. So he will deliver a lethal blow to the serpent. So this is, uh, this is often talked about as referencing just in a rough picture, the cross of Jesus, where on that cross, he defeats the power of Satan. And yet he, he is, his life is taken at the same time. And yet Jesus uh, is raised from the dead. I will put enmity, this will come. Well, that's the book of Genesis. So you've got a long time between the book of Genesis and, you know, the Christmas story. You've got a long, long time. And yet we see in Galatians 4 and 4, when the time had fully come, uh, God sent his son. In some translations, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. That's a long, long wait. Um, for this promise to, to be fulfilled. And the problem with us today is that we don't like waiting. We live in an instant culture. Instant. I mean, it's, it's faster than instant. It's electronic. It is light fast. You know, it used to be uh, that we had instant coffee. Remember the days of instant coffee before there was things like Starbucks and Second Cup? People drank you know, Nescafe or name me some of these instant coffees, right? So the, there was instant coffee. Wow, everybody was so impressed by instant coffee. And then what did we come up with? We came up with a new way to cook food. So we put microwaves through the food. You can go and buy a microwave for $50 and it will heat your food. You don't even need an oven. You can just nuke it we call it, right? Just put it in and nuke that thing and it'll be ready in one minute instead of an hour. Instant. Well, all of that now is dinosaur age compared to the electronics that we all have in our pockets. I mean, these things are running at light speed. There's nothing that can stop them except, you know, a hacker or a, or a battery that fails, right? They're running at light speed, instant. We don't like waiting because we don't have to wait anymore. Well, that's not, what, that's not what's going on in, in the Scripture. In the Scripture, you've got a long, long time that passes 
where people are waiting and waiting for this promise of the Messiah to come, and they're waiting a long, long time. Now, we too are in a period of waiting, if you think about it. Uh, again, look, look around at the world. Uh, is the world the way that God wants the world to be? I don't think so. I mean, if we look around at the world and we say, look at all of this war, look at all of these, these things that are going on that are clearly, clearly opposed to God. Well, how do you think God feels about that? If we feel that this is an unjust or a dark world, uh, how much more does God feel those things? How much more does God want to change all those things? And we are in that period of waiting, not for the first advent or the first coming of Jesus, but we're in the period of waiting for the second coming of Jesus. Because when he comes back a second time, that's when he's going to mete out justice. That's when he's going to, to change this world on a global, global sense. So we're in this period of waiting as well. My question is, what are you doing while you're waiting? What is the church doing while the church is waiting? What are you doing as a Christian uh, while you're waiting? Okay, so, so these people uh, back in the time of Jesus, if you go back into their time of history, you've got a period just to focus on one period of waiting, you've got 400 years where God is saying nothing to the people. So last prophecy in the Bible, last prophet in the Bible is the prophet uh, Malachi. We did, a, we did a series on prophets here, and he's one of the prophets who we covered. So last prophetic word comes out of Malachi. You know how many years you've got between Malachi and Matthew? You've got four Hundred years, 400. You've got generations of people dying, waiting for God to speak again. There's no prophetic voice. There's nobody writing anything. There's nobody prophesying. God is apparently doing nothing, apparently, and people are waiting. And then all of a sudden, onto the scene, we see Matthew and we see Luke and we see the gospel stories. Well, let me tell you what was going on. While people were waiting, God was preparing the stage for the next chapter and the next phase of history. And I want to show you a few pictures of some really significant people who were floating around in that 400-year period of silence, we call it. The first one, you'll put them on the screen there, is the ruler, the, the powerful ruler, Alexander the Great. You may have heard of him. Um, he conquered most of the known world by the age of 33. Alexander the Great. He was a brilliant and yet a ruthless uh, military mind. He was a very wise diplomat at the same time. Um, he believed that the best way to ensure a united kingdom was to create a universal Greek culture and language and philosophy and religion. So he wanted to make the entire world Greek. That was his strategy, and he was largely successful at doing it. He dies at the age of 33 after a life of debauchery. His kingdom is divided amongst four of his leading generals. Um, we see this magnificently predicted in the book of Daniel. The predictions in the book of Daniel about this period in history are so accurate that scholars say that Daniel must have been written after this time where the Greeks were taking control of the known world at that time. It's fascinating if you study it. But anyway, one of the four guys 
who would, who would rule uh, after Alexander the Great uh, was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll look at him in a second, but what did, what did um, Alexander the Great leave behind? Well, because he wanted to make the world Greek, because he wanted a Greek religion, a Greek culture, a Greek philosophy, Greek everything, we now have Greek scriptures. If you go to the next slide, this is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Bible in that day. And it's very, very important that Alexander was able to to get the Greek language across the whole, the whole uh, known world at that time, because we have the, the Bible in Greek, uh, it, it, it was copied and spread very, very quickly. And the language of the New Testament is Greek. So it, we have Alexander the Great to thank for this. Ultimately, we have God to thank for it, again, as he's putting the pieces of the puzzle together to prepare the way for Jesus. And again, one of his generals who would take over um, was this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, if you put the next thing on the screen there. Uh, this was a very, very nasty guy. Um, he was a, um, kind of a successor, if you will, to Alexander the Great, and he was what you call a Seleucid um, ruler. And uh, Antiochus IV, he called himself Epiphanes, uh, which in Greek means God in the flesh. This is what he called himself. Uh, the Jews would, would call him Epimenes or madman because of the things that he did to them. The coin there says, King Antiochus, God manifest, victory bearer. Again, we're talking about the period of silence here where God is not speaking. He would try and, and uh, uh, do a kind of an ancient form of ethnic cleansing and wipe out. Uh, the Jews entirely. He would try anyway and uh, turn them all into, into Greeks um, so that their identity would be completely obliterated. He imposed the death penalty on people who would uh, do things like circumcise their sons or celebrate Jewish festivals. festivals. He would execute these people or people who kept the Sabbath or the sacrificial law or people reading the, the Old Testament or the Torah. He would execute these people. It's estimated that he had at least 100,000 Jewish people killed. He put up altars to Zeus and he would force the Jews to sacrifice pigs on them. Uh, he finally did this in the temple in Jerusalem in uh, around one, I think, 180 BC, something like that, or 170 BC. Uh, many scholars look at this fellow as a, a, a type of antichrist. So they say. Is that better? Yeah, pardon my voice today. I'm a little scratchy. Um, so the uh, Epiphanies, uh, many of the scholars today, they say when the Antichrist comes, he's going to be like this man. He was so, so vicious. And uh, it, it, back in that day, there was a revolt that took place against him uh, by a Jewish um, general. Uh, who, he was a Maccabean. You can look up what all that means. His name was Judas Maccabeus. And the story goes that he would, he would take back the temple after this, this madman profaned it. He would take the temple back using guerrilla warfare, and he would physically overcome uh, the Seleucids that were there with his army. And then they would take power back in the temple, and they would light the sacred candelabra that was there. And uh, they didn't have enough oil, the story is told, to keep it lit 
and yet it stayed miraculously lit for a period of eight days. And this is what the Jews celebrate today. It's called Hanukkah, if you'll put the next thing on the screen. And you'll see this in, you know, in Jewish culture, even in the modern world. Jesus himself observed this. And those lights there are the lights of hope, you know. And Jewish people, they, whenever they celebrate this, it's usually around Christmas time. It reminds them uh, that God is a God who gives hope. And this was all in the period where they're waiting, waiting, waiting uh, for the Messiah uh, to come. And then you have the period of Herod. And this is Herod the Great, the next picture. And this is the fellow who we meet in the Christmas stories. And uh, Herod the Great was, was a powerful man. He was a great architect. Uh, some of the things that Herod built you can visit today. You can go to the ancient Middle East and you can see them. In particular, you can see the, the roadways uh, that were built, some of them under his rule and his reign, that are still around today. And because of those roadways, the gospel message was able to be transmitted quickly via the means of transport of the day, you know, walking, horseback, and that kind of thing. But because of Herod the Great, we have those things. Even though he was a very, very nasty and paranoid ruler, this is a, a fellow who had several members of his family uh, uh, assassinated because he was, he was paranoid that they were trying to, to get him to take the throne. He really is quite a vicious person in history, and, and it aligns well uh, that he was someone who oversaw the execution of all these babies that we see uh, in the gospel story. What am I trying to tell you? Over that period of 400 years, God is setting the stage. He's setting the stage for the next piece of the puzzle. He's getting the whole thing set for the Son of God to come into the world. And the people back then had nothing that they could do but embrace that time and live in that time. What are we doing now as we wait for the second coming of Christ as Christian people uh, Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 talks about the hope that we wait for. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and of our Savior, Jesus. But what do we do while we wait for that hope? And the, the other verses, and we'll look at them uh, in a few minutes when we do communion. But it says this, it says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So what does that grace cause us to do? It causes us to say no, he says, to ungodliness and no to worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. What does that mean? That means if you're going to live as a Christian in the world today, you need to be living in the world today. Many of us, we want to hide from the world around us. We want to bury our heads in the sand. We want to be monks. We want to alienate ourselves from the culture because we say, well, it's a dark world. Well, you know when you shine brightest is when you're right there in the messy and dark world. It doesn't say to run away from it. It says you live a godly life. You live an unashamed and godly life. You say no to sin. You say no to ungodliness, but you do that in this world while you're waiting for the coming of Christ. I had a person who, who messaged me this week. Uh, she's from another church, and she asked me uh, a question, and she said, um, 
you know, I know this person, and this person, um, it, you know, it, it believes that such and such a practice is okay. What do you think? Right? It was a little bit of a loaded question, I guess. And really, the question behind the question is, if a person claims to be a Christian, then how do they live Christianly in this dark world? And this is what the passage is about. You've got to embrace the weight. Um, if the church and if Christian people are just saying, let's go hide in a bunker somewhere, let's go bury our heads in the sand and wait for Jesus to return, well, that's pretty ineffective. Um, when, when, when we're called to be salt and light, do you know what salt was back, back then? Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Do you know what salt did back in the day? Any of you? It preserves. Yeah, what does it preserve? Meat. Yeah, back in the day when you have no refrigeration, what do you do? You throw salt on that meat, right? You just drown it in salt because it's going to preserve the meat a little bit longer. Well, it's got to be touching the, the, the meat. If it's just flying around in the air, it's useless. If it's not touching the meat and it's not, it's not doing its job, it's useless salt. Jesus says you take the salt and you trample on it, it's useless. So it's got to be touching the meat. And the same thing with light. Light has to be in a dark place in order for it to shine. You've got to be willing to embrace the weight that we are in. Uh, and finally, you've got to take the journey. Uh, you, there's a journey that God has every one of us on, uh, whether we know it or not. But we have to go along with it, and we have to take certain steps. So if you, if you do the, the math, so to speak, and you look at the Christmas story, and you look at all the journeying that people do in that story, it's amazing to look at. You look at these, these, uh, these wise men, these, these uh, magi. You know, they go from Persia to Jerusalem because they're following this bizarre star in the sky. And they're following it presumably for hundreds of miles before they get to the city of Jerusalem. And this based on what? Based on their strange beliefs about stargazing and a prophecy from Numbers 24 and 17, a really strange prophecy. This is what they're, and they go on this long, long journey. So they get to Jerusalem. And they say, the word gets around that you've got this caravan of wise men from Persia. I mean, they must have stuck out like a sore thumb in Jerusalem. And they say, where is he that was born king of the Jews? We've seen his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Huh? So everybody, it says, the, the Bible says that Herod and Jerusalem were, were all disturbed to hear this news. Because it was, who, what king? Who are you talking about? What? How do these Persians, what are, what, who, who is this and what are they saying? And so we, they, they do a little bit of research and Herod is nervous and he says, tell me what do the scriptures say about the Messiah, where he's supposed to come from? And they say, well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, verse 2. And so the wise men, they say, well, let's go to Bethlehem. So they go to Bethlehem and whoop, they see the star. And it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced and they go to the house where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are, and they present their gifts. When that's over, they head back to Persia. But they're warned not to go back via Herod the Great. They're warned in a supernatural way, don't go back that way. So they take an alternate route, and they head back to Persia. Quite a journey. What does Mary do? Well, Mary goes from Nazareth to Judea and back to visit her pregnant cousin, 
uh, Elizabeth after the angel Gabriel goes to Mary, then the angel Gabriel goes to uh, Elizabeth, or vice versa. I can't remember. You could read it yourself. But she makes this journey to go visit Elizabeth, and then she comes back. That's an interesting journey. And then you see Mary and Joseph. What do they do? They go from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of the census imposed by, by Caesar Augustus. And then they go from Bethlehem to, to Jerusalem to dedicate the baby and run into Simeon and Anna at the temple. And then they go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem where they have the visit of the wise men. And then they escape to Egypt after they're warned by an angel. And then they go back to Nazareth Again, being told by an angel, lots of journeys that are being taken uh, by these people in the Christmas story. But what's going on when you read them? You see that God somehow reveals himself to people, and then people have to respond. So, Mary, you're going to have a son, and this is who he's going to be. Elizabeth, you're going to have a son, and this is who he's going to be. Wise men, you see that star? You need to follow it. Uh, Mary and Joseph, there's a census. You need to go to Rome. God, either by his providence or in a supernatural way, shows himself to people, and the people have to respond, and they have to take the journey, and they have to be willing to say, okay, God is doing something. What steps am I going to take to connect with what God is doing? And many, many times in our lives, God is working, and he's doing something in our lives. I believe that God is always working in our lives. But what are we doing to journey toward him? What step are you taking toward hope? Or are you just sitting there and saying, it's all going to drop into my lap. Uh, God's going to give me everything that I need, and I don't have to do anything to get there. No, you have to take a journey, and you have to walk toward hope. Maybe it's an actual physical journey. Maybe it's something that you have to surrender to God, something that you have to give up in life. But you have to respond. And God requires that response from his people. He hasn't created little robots uh, that he just controls mindlessly. He wants you to volitionally, uh, willingly take steps toward him. So embrace the weight, take the journey, and acknowledge the darkness that's real. I'd invite the worship team if they'd come, and we're going to take a few minutes and uh, refocus on that little passage of Scripture from uh, Titus chapter 2, and we're going to have communion together. I hope you've all received these, these little emblems. This is the way that we do it here, really simple, uh, but uh, very profound at the same time. It's good to do this. It's good to do this once in a while. It refreshes you. It resets your soul. Life is very simple. Uh, Jesus came. Jesus was born as a little baby. Jesus went to the cross and died in our place, and Jesus is coming again. What does Paul say? For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So Christ has come, and he has appeared, and he offers to us the gift of salvation. And he says to us, I died in your place. Your sins have separated you from me and from God, and I have died as a substitute so that you can now have a relationship with me so that that barrier between us is gone. Uh, God requires the ultimate, ultimate penalty for sin, but he has paid that price, and he has, uh, has done that as our substitute. The grace of God has appeared 
that offers salvation to all people. There's no exceptions. There's no special people who are somehow exempt. He offers salvation to every, every one of us. And that salvation teaches us something. It teaches us how to live in this world. Uh, but the death of Jesus on the cross is a, is a wonderful, wonderful gift to us. And this is what we acknowledge uh, when we take these emblems. Uh, the, the wafer that's there, and you can just peel back the top layer, and you'll see a little, little thin wafer that's there. You can go ahead and peel that back. And it's really, really simple. It's just a symbol uh, of the body of Jesus. It's just a picture and a reminder. And it's a very simple thing we do. We all eat. And so this is the kind of thing that we can do very, very easily. And not only does this little wafer remind us of the physical body of Jesus that hung on the cross, it also reminds us that we are the body of Christ. We are the community of faith. Uh, we are the ones who call upon Jesus as the Son of God. So if you'll take that wafer and you'll take it with me at this time. And now if you'll peel back the second layer there, it's a little thicker. You're going to see, um, you're going to see a little bit of juice there. Don't worry, there's no alcohol in it, okay? It's just juice. Uh, but that juice, again, is a symbol. And this, in particular, is a symbol of the blood of Jesus. Uh, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And th that may sound a little, a little grim and a little strange, uh, that blood is so important. But again, it's the idea that we're covered that Christ has covered us and he declares us to be without sin because of what he has done in our lives. It says to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus. Paul would write to the Corinthians when speaking about communion. And he would say that we're to do this and to keep doing this and to keep remembering until Jesus comes. Would you take the juice with me? Please stand. I'd like the band, if they'd lead us. There's a great song here that really uh, shows what communion is all about. And if we could just sing that one time, and then I'll close in prayer. And take your time as you sing and focus on the words. They're really, really powerful this morning.